1: That's that psalm points us to Christ, who is that man who is fully obedient. It also reminds us uh, in some ways in, how, ways in which we are not fully obedient. So we come to God and confess our sins. Uh, Acts chapter 2, at the end of the Pentecost sermon that Peter preaches, is our uh, call to confession this morning. Hear God's word. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucify. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "'Brothers, what shall we do?' And Peter said to them, "'Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit.'" Thus far the reading of God's word. Uh, This morning in the message, we'll consider what happens to us when God saves us. Uh, The catechism questions fit nicely with that today on faith and repentance. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 2 as well. Uh, they were cut to the heart. They ask, What shall we do? And Peter says, Repent. And many of them do. Now, this involved a drastic change of direction for them uh, into a relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, into fellowship in his church. Uh, some of us have experienced that drastic change ourselves. Uh, for others, we've been raised in the church. And we remember that God also calls all of us uh, to course corrections along the way uh, because we all get off track in various ways. We have to keep trusting that Jesus is the way, not our own opinions. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Let's pray. Lord, your uh, psalmist has told us the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights for with you is the fountain of life in your light do we see light and that is our prayer today Lord that we would see your light drink of your waters feast on the abundance of your house we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, throughout this sermon series on biblical worldview, I'm attempting the impossible every time. Today, salvation is the, the topic, so I'm going to cover every aspect of salvation in a quick 30-minute drive-by kind of thing. Um, you have the sermon outline there, and you see how impossible it is if you look at that. All those, you know, you're going to get a little frustrated. I'll cover this, you know, topic that could take six sermons in three minutes kind of thing. So think of it more, I've, I've thought about this, and to allay your fears or frustrations a bit, perhaps think of this more as the portrait of a Christian. The, the idea here is, I'm, I'm going to just paint with a few brushstrokes what justification is. That's, that's, you know, if, if you think of a self-portrait, I'll talk about Vincent van Gogh in a minute, you think of different features that are portrayed. So think of the, the eye of faith and the ear of justification, whatever it might be. We're, we're painting a, a quick sketch here, the portrait of a Christian. And the key here from Ephesians 2 is that God redeems his people sovereignly. Right? He gives them a new heart, Ezekiel says. He gives them faith. Ephesians 2, uh, 8 says that. We're saved through faith, and this is not our own doing. It's a gift. Uh, so, uh, so God sovereignly redeems us, gives us that gift of faith to turn back to him, to be his beloved children, to follow his ways. So first we'll look at how God saves us, what, more, more what God does, uh, and then we'll look at how we experience that. Uh, But all of it really is God applying redemption to us. That's the idea. Uh, Now, uh, Van Gogh might be a good uh, way to look at this. Van Gogh painted several uh, self-portraits, very famous ones. uh, And he also famously cut off his own ear. I don't know the whole story. You can research that yourself. But he he painted a self-portrait of himself with the bandage around his head at one point. So uh, part of what I'd like you to do as we look at this portrait is to consider yourself like that. Uh, this, is, this is kind of the portrait of a Christian in quick, quick sketch. And be thinking of your own self-portrait, your own spiritual uh, life. And be looking for any mi- missing features. Or features that are a little weaker or stronger. Uh, and, and see uh, how that can apply to your own uh, walk with the Lord. So first, how we're saved. So, uh, there's common grace and the external call, we call it. Uh, uh, the idea here is that God causes the c- crops to grow. Uh, people invent things that make life easier, uh, from fire to phones. Uh, humanity has all, all these things, and, and all for people who continue to rebel against their creator. Right? Uh, God has been very kind to, to humanity since the garden. And he calls all of us back to him. Second Peter 3 says God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The contrast, uh, truth to keep in mind, is that God could have just uh, done away with us right after Adam and Eve sinned. But instead, he's continued the world, provided for us abundantly, all while most of us still have not returned to him. So, it brings us back to John 3, 16 from last week. God sends Jesus to the whole world that whoever believes will live. That's called the the external call. God is calling everyone back to him. But most people are rejecting that call right now. And that's something that we ought to think about in our own spiritual lives, even as a life together as a church. This is something to consider. We're very tempted, because of that rejection, to just turn inward. And, and to just let people find us if they want to. And we have to be careful not to continue to do that. It's, it can be very frustrating to be Ezekiel crying out to a valley of dry bones. right? You, you go out there and you, you tell someone about the Lord, and, and all you get is dry bones back. And, and there's uh, no interest. There's, there's the brush off. There's the hatred. There's whatever it may be. And it's tempting then to just turn inward and just say, well, they'll, they'll come find me if they really want to know. No, we, we need to continue to shout out gospel truth and to extend the external call. So that's uh, the first point there. This is part of how God saves us. He calls all men to repentance. Uh, I think it was Spurgeon himself who was, uh, just wandered into a church one Sunday and heard a, a, a message, a sermon, and was converted. Just the, just the external call going out, uh, rather at, uh, I wouldn't say random, but it was random for him. And all of a sudden, he believed. I've I've heard stories of that from some of you, that that's kind of how things went. You were online, and all of a sudden, you came across this video. Oh, that showed you some things. There's that external call. So the next one is the effectual call and regeneration. See, there's a problem here. Uh, John 6 says it well. No one can come to uh, to Jesus. No one can come to the Son, Jesus says, unless the Father draws him. See, we have a heart of stone, and Ezekiel 36, God describes replacing it with a heart of flesh, and that's what's called regeneration. If you remember a couple times ago, we looked at the the doctrine of man, what we're like, and I used the weird metaphor of the zombie, right? We're spiritual zombies in a sense. Well, God revives us. He gives us real life back. Uh, and, uh, and that's called regeneration that's why we sang and can it be this morning that, that favorite line of mine thine eye diffuse the quickening ray right that's like um, in the Apostles Creed we have the old language that Jesus is going to come back and judge the quick and the dead right the quickening ray doesn't just mean that light is fast the quickening ray means the life-giving ray that's the old word, word for quick right if you're, if we speak of the quickening sometimes. We all of a sudden sense life in the womb. That's, that's what we're talking about. So God gives life. There's a real sense in which we're dead until God regenerates us. So God calls everyone generally to repentance. And he wants us to reach out to everyone as well. But he has chosen his church, his elect, to call in an irresistible way. Right? Um, my favorite example of this is in John 5. This is kind of a metaphor, but stick with me. In John 5, Jesus says that on the last great day, and this is Jesus talking, I love how Jesus speaks very specifically about that last day, when he's going to return and judge. And what does he say about it? Jesus is going to call you out of your grave, it says, and they will come forth. Right? That's, that's an irresistible call, Right? It, Think of that. Jesus is going to call you out and you will come. That's an irresistible call from our creator, our maker, our redeemer. It's the same thing with regeneration. God sends life-giving light and power into your dead heart. And it starts beating again. Beating for God. And to move right on to the next point, saving faith. The first thing that beating heart does is believe God. That's what God made our hearts to do. And that's why Ephesians 2 says that faith is a gift. It's not of works. So, see, in John 6, the crowds ask Jesus what they should do to to do what God wants. And they use the word work over and over. It's kind of weird. What work should we do to work the work of God is how the, the Greek literally goes. And Jesus says, the work that God wants you to do is to believe in his Son. Right? So we kind of get the wrong idea from that, that faith is our work. right? What work should we do to work what God wants us to work? Faith. So we get the wrong idea that from, from that, that faith is our own doing. No, it's a gift of God. We wouldn't believe God, we could not believe God without working. Uh, excuse me, without God working. This is why we sang the, the Greg Strawbridge song this morning. "'Tis not that I did choose thee. Lord, that could not be." If first you weren't working in me. Now, it's also true that we are genuinely responding ourselves in a life changing way, right? The, when, when we believe, it's really us believing. It's not just that, we're, you know, the, the caricature is that we're just puppets and God's just moving us. No, we have real minds, real hearts, but God has to give us that and it has to be beating for it to work. And then. Our heart actually beats. We breathe. We trust. Um, and that's, that's the life-changing aspect of that. I often uh, use the Indiana Jones uh, illustration here uh, as, a, as a negative example. There's that scene where he's um, going to walk out in the chasm, right? It looks like it's just nothing there. And, and the, the sign says to just go ahead and walk. So he kind of gins up faith in himself, right? And then he steps out, and it turns out there's some invisible bridge right? That's often a negative example because you can't just gin up faith for a moment like that. That's not really biblical faith. But the positive aspect of that is that there's a life-changing thing that happens there when you act in faith. And that's what, that's what Indiana Jones does there. That changes everything. That keeps him going in, in his uh, mission. So uh, saving faith is something God gives to us and something that we exercise, and then justification is the next part, uh, piece of the portrait. Justification. This is uh, God declaring us righteous uh, before God himself. And uh, Romans 5, 1, I wanted to, to read as a part of that. Uh, here again, we're in the first section of the, of the message where we're talking more about what God does than what we do. Romans 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So there's, a, uh, there's God justifying us as he considers our faith. That faith which, of course, he gave us, right? I tried to think of an example of this this week. I didn't really come up with a good one. But it's, it's something like the parents giving their children uh, all the same gift for Christmas. And then saying, okay, now whoever has that gift gets to have Christmas dinner, right? It's, God justifies us based on what he decided to give us. And that's, that's God's sovereign uh, way that he redeems us. So uh, this shows up, by the way, in our daily interactions all the time. Uh, I don't know that we realize this, but it happens. Uh, all, all the time, when we're dealing with each other as family, maybe even as churches, as friends, we're saying things like, oh, you're fine, you're fine. Right? That's a declaration of justification. Right? When you do something that you think, ah, that, that might have offended that person, or maybe I went too far when I said that. And they say back to you, oh, you're fine, you're fine. We're justifying each other. We're, we're saying, I'm okay with you. That's, that's fine. And things get really awkward when that's obviously lacking. So, so justification has a, a real um, down-to-earth, street-level application. But God justifies us uh, by faith alone. Uh, Adoption is the next piece of the of the portrait, and and here we read in the assurance of pardon that uh, we are uh, made heirs uh, of God, that we cry out Abba, right? We have a father. And I read recently, or not read, listened to. Um, uh, Jason Farley, some of you listen to the Fight, Laugh, Feast network a bit. Uh, I'd really encourage Jason Farley, whenever he comes on there, listen to, listen to him. He, he was at a camp recently and did a Q&A. Somebody was asking about apologetics and what do you do when people are sucked into the identity politics stuff. And he went straight to adoption. And he said, yeah, the apologetics, the arguments can just fall flat sometimes. If, if they're convinced in their mind maybe that what you say is true... But it means they'd have to give up their whole tribe. All their friends, their whole identity would have to completely change. And they get a little stuck there. And that's where adoption comes in. We're part of a family as the church. Part of the family of God. Identity and belonging matter. And so uh, that God deals with that. He doesn't just give us justification. He adopts us into his family. So we are uh, children, sons and daughters of the king in our adoption. Well, moving right along, and uh, now we look at what we experience more when we're saved. Repentance and conversion. Repentance and conversion. We talked about this a little bit in the Acts 2 reading. uh, But I had a a former elder once in another church who described this well. He, He came to faith later in life. And he said, conversion for me was just me realizing, kind of face palming, like, oh, we're all sinners. <laughs> and, and just having that reality sink in. That, that's uh, conversion. Fits closely with faith, receiving God's word. Not just receiving as, a, like, I'll listen to it. But believing this is God speaking, believing it's true. Basic things like this. Conversion is just our experience of God regenerating our hearts. We experience the reality of God, his holiness, our wretchedness. We cry out, save me. Now, many of us growing up in the church may not have had a dramatic point of that happening. And that's fine. Uh, But if you have no memory of realizing that you fall short of living how God wants, well, that's an important piece of the portrait of a Christian. And that's something that is often missing from the the compromised church. Uh, Many people in the the church are missing that piece. So repentance and conversion. And sanctification and good works follow uh, after. And this connects, I should have maybe put this by justification, but anyway. Sanctification and good works. Uh, So uh, Ephesians uh, 2.10 speaks of this as well, right? Right after saying that we're justified, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works... The very next verse says, we were made for good works. God prepared us to do good works. Uh, I think it's Luther that coined the phrase, we say a lot, we're we're justified by a faith alone, by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. So uh, works always accompanies true faith. Now, uh, don't get the wrong idea in this portrait, by the way. Let's pause on the portrait concept. Uh, facial features, sometimes there's something in there that's like, oh, that's interesting, right? But not all of us are perfectly beautiful and perfectly proportioned and shaped, right? There's, there's flaws on the face or, or, or in the portrait somewhere. And, and that's part of our sanctification and our good works, right? Uh, Christ is cleansing the church of every spot and wrinkle, it's that metaphor even uh, Paul uses in Ephesians 5. So it isn't all positive. Uh, there are spots and wrinkles that we have. Uh, God allows for our sinful nature to stay. And he wants us to fight it. That's part of our sanctification. That's a good uh, truth just to think about in itself. Why does God do that? Why does, why does God leave us with this to fight? There, there's something there that he's doing in his wisdom he doesn't remove it and we shouldn't deny it's there so uh, Romans 7 can come into play here right where Paul says I I do the thing I don't want to do I I do things I know I shouldn't do Uh, God deliver me from this body of death so there's a a real sense of struggle there in the Christian life Uh, Westminster calls it a long and irreconcilable war but again true faith does lead to good works Truly regenerate and converted people live differently. Uh, When we talk about sanctification, we we ought to uh, distinguish there's two different kinds. There's definitive sanctification, right? Where God decisively at a a point in time uh, sets us apart as his. Uh, And the beginning of many of Paul's epistles, he'll say to the elect in Corinth. And the word elect there is called out. it's very closely related to the word sanctified. Those who've been called out, set apart, these are mine of the people in Corinth. So there's that kind of definitive meaning. And then there's also a progressive sanctification. That we learn, we mature, we grow over time uh, in our uh, walk with the Lord. Uh, I I like the uh, piano lesson uh, metaphor here. I've been a piano teacher in the past and I'm uh, picking it up again a little bit. It, piano students will progress where they are motivated. And, and that's a life lesson. That's true for everyone. Sometimes you give um, four songs to a piano student and they learn one really well. Because they like it. And they're motivated to play it. The other ones, not so much. And that, that happens very often. And the teacher can see when they aren't motivated. That The best case is a student that makes progress in all areas even though she doesn't like them all. And that's, that's what God's calling us to, to make progress in, in all areas of our spiritual lives, even when he's um, making things hard for us in this area and we really don't like it. And our tendency then is often just to kind of ignore that and just go work on other things instead of uh, growing in the grace of the, of the Lord. So, sanctification and good works is a piece of the portrait. Uh, The law goes along with that. I'm going to skip the next two in the outline, no time. Uh, So, skipping to the law. um, The law is a delight to the lover of God. The psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. How I delight in your law. Uh, But to those who do not know the Lord, the law is a bane. It's a curse. The law drives us to Christ when we see our guilt. But when we're in Christ, the law shows us how to please him, which is what we want to do. It's kind of like a lion that chases you through the dark woods, and then you see the warmly lit cottage uh, just on the top of the hill, And, and you run there for safety, and there you find Christ. You're safe from the condemnation, from the devouring lion. But then, the lion comes in the door of the cottage too, and transforms into a beloved seeing-eye dog, a guide for you when you venture out into the darkness again uh, to help you go on the way. Uh, The law is something like that. As you're in Christ, uh, don't see the law as something to fear, condemning you. It is a great guide and teacher. Uh, the Reformed, uh, in, just to talk about the different Protestant camps a minute, the, the Reformed tend to, to spend more time on the law uh, than the general evangelical or Baptist, I've gathered. Uh, the, 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 uh, the other emphasis is, you're not under the law anymore. The Spirit will show you what you should do. Just be led by the Spirit. Well, we tend to say the Spirit has shown us very specifically how to live in the law. So, so there's, there's some differing emphases and tendencies there. Uh, the Reformed uh, Church liturgies for four centuries have always included the Ten Commandments after the assurance of pardon in the worship service. And you see that reflected in, in our service as well, where we read the Catechism after the assurance of pardon. That's, that's part of that tradition. Because once we've been set free, been forgiven, now we turn back to the law for guidance. How, how does God want us to live? That, that's the first question that they ask Peter. When they're cut to the heart and they want to repent, what should we do? God's word gives us lots of guidance. So, uh, James also compares the law to a mirror, right? We see ourselves in it, and we often don't like what we see because there's those spots and blemishes. Uh, the story's told of uh, Winston Churchill, he's a hero of mine. Stories told that he had a portrait done of himself while he was in office, and he went to go see the portrait and he just hated it he's like this portrait just shows me as a grouchy cranky old guy and i forget who it was i think it was his wife says said to him well are you a grouchy cranky old guy <laughs> it, it, you know one of my heroes but everybody's got flaws right so that's what the law does you hold up a mirror and oh you see yourself a bit more clearly or, or you can go back to the music metaphor. Uh, students are often frustrated at the music on the page because they can't play it yet. It's a little too hard for them. There's some frustration there. And, and to learn the written music, to obey God's written word, it's very important, but it's hard. Now, now with that said, sometimes the music is inside you, right? And, and you play by ear. And that's great, too. I was... Um, We sang that song by Greg Strawbridge this morning. He actually sat me down in his living room once at his piano. And I I asked him, I can read music well, but I don't know all this stuff about playing by ear. What are you talking about? So he kind of walked me through a little bit, and it was completely different. It it, it was very foreign to me. Like, how do you do this? So there's a way that people who play by ear, they, they just know the structure of music. There's a metaphor there, I think, somewhere, that, that we're called to, to follow the written law, but we also have the Spirit in our hearts who prompts us, who gives us kind of the, 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 the inner music, uh, to put it in some way. You know, an example of what I'm talking about is this. Sometimes you're led to do something for someone, to love someone in a very specific way, but it's not like there's a specific commandment that you're thinking of, right? It's the Spirit prompting you. Now, that doesn't mean it's outside the law. You're, just, you're being prompted by the Spirit more than the law. So both things can be true at once. You want to keep going back to the written word to make sure your promptings aren't going astray of, the, of what God has said. But often, God calls you to improvise and to play it by ear. So that's the law. The liberty is the next piece. Liberty of conscience. I'm, and I'm talking here in two senses. Uh, Christian liberty you can, it has different uh, meanings. But let's just look at two briefly. Uh, one is we're free from bondage to sin and guilt. right? We're free from a conscience that condemns us. This goes back to the hymn we sang. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Right? It's a beautiful picture of, of being just stuck in a dark dungeon. We can't get out. But, but God brings life and light and we can stand up and walk out. And we are free. There's that sense of liberty of, of, uh, that, that God has given to us. And then a second uh, thing to consider there is liberty of conscience. I've been uh, pretty deep into Westminster and the creed, the reformed confessions of the 1600s throughout this uh, sermon series uh, just for structure and for other uh, ideas. One thing I realized just this morning is that uh, the the church context when those were written th- there was a great deal of tyranny uh, both political and ecclesiastical. The the church uh, was dealing with a lot of uh, you know, top-down authoritarian kind of church stuff. Like, you will use this prayer book. You will do this in your church. And the Westminster Divines especially, they wrote liberty of conscience into that for that very reason. That we are free from the tyranny of state or church authority. If your pastor or your president tell you that you have to do something, you go to the Bible, and you see if it's in there. And if it isn't, Well, you go with the Bible. There's liberty of conscience there. You want to hear them out carefully, out of deference to earthly authority. But your conscience is bound to God and to his word. That's very important. We have liberty of conscience. Not that you're free to do anything you want, but within the bounds of God's law, yes, you are. There's a freedom there. And churches tend to um, add on to God's law uh, too much. Well, we really need to do this. Well, we really need to do that. Uh, and, and sometimes those are wise things, but you have to uh, distinguish between what's required and what's wise, or, or what's uh, better or best. So liberty of conscience is an important part of the Christian life, especially as we grow, as we start to make our own decisions uh, on how we're going to do things as an as a individual Christian, as, as a family we found in the faith. Uh, The last piece I'll mention is prayer. Uh, This uh, piece of the portrait of the Christian. And this is really where the conscious Christian life starts, is prayer. Uh, You hear the gospel, and you don't just nod and think to yourself, I agree with these principles. That's not being a Christian, right? No, what you do is you talk to God, because you've heard this gospel presentation, so now you believe that he is there. And you believe that you've sinned against him. Right? So you talk to him. That, that's the beginning of a Christian life. And sometimes that's, uh, that's almost foreign to us Reformed people who are, are in the world of ideas so much. Right? We're, we're, we think about God and we make sure we're thinking the right thing about God. Read the Bible. That's all true. But the whole portrait of a Christian is all about a relationship with a living God. If you only think about God and seldom talk to him, there's a problem with the portrait. I think I mentioned this at the end last time, and, and same thing here. Uh, you know, back in the anti-institutional 70s, they said this all the time, right? Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion. That, that whole idea. Well, uh, it, it's, it's honestly true. Christianity is a relationship. Just don't be anti-institutional along with it, I would say. There's a lot of things to talk about. Lots of people reduce Christianity to only the relationship. And that's a problem. Uh, Your faith in Christ should affect your family. It should take you to church. It should involve you in people's lives that you wouldn't otherwise get involved with. It should affect the politics of your county and of your state. But the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart. And, And how can you do that if you're not talking to him? So, uh, prayer is uh, where the Christian life really starts, and and is suffused with throughout. Um, This is a typically Reformed thing, Uh, I'll um, mention a couple of books on prayer. Uh, Good books on prayer, A Praying Life by Paul Miller, and anything by E.M. Bounds uh, are good uh, to consider praying. But again, that's a typically Reformed thing, let's let's study how to pray. Uh, What you really want to do is pray. Right? Sometimes it's important to work on how you're communicating in marriage. You need to study communication a little bit, maybe. right? That, that's good to do, but the key is to do it. <laughs> Open your heart to God. Pour out your desires to him, is the way the Westminster puts it. That's what he saved you for, is that communion, that fellowship. That's why every worship service, we move from the table, from the pulpit to the table. Because God designed us to move from confession to consecration, being reordered by the word, to now fellowship with God again. That's the goal. That's what he saved you for. So, uh, in our uh, denomination, we often emphasize the corporate church. And we're going to look at that next time, the church. Uh, In that emphasis, sometimes we can downplay the individual piety. So I'm kind of hammering away at that a bit these last couple Sundays. You need an individual relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to focus on your heart repentance and willingness to serve God. Consider your portrait. Uh, Consider the specific shape that that, uh, obedience should look like in your family, in your station in life. God is redeeming his people sovereignly. He gives you a new heart, faith to turn back to him. You're his beloved children to follow his ways. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, for the way in which you hold up a portrait to us of of Christ, and and then you hold up a mirror for us to see ourselves. And all of this, Lord, is your grace and your compassion, uh, restoring us to the image of your Son. Lord, we... Uh, Don't realize all the ways in which we have uh, smashed and ruined your image in ourselves, in your world. Uh, But as we consider your word, uh, we see more and more of this. uh, And you continue to assure us uh, and uh, draw us to yourself. Lord, keep us from discouragement when the portrait looks uh, so ugly to us. Keep us from pride when we are tempted to preen. Lord, uh, keep us steadfast in your word and focused on the portrait of Christ so that we can learn to be more and more like him. We pray in his name, the ever living word, and we sing as he taught us to pray. Thank you
0: for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.